All right, tonight is Ash Wednesday, so the format changes just a little bit. We usually have Learn by Heart from 6.30 to 7, and then at 7 we have the Catechesis Service. Uh, tonight we've got the Ash Wednesday Divine Service with Communion at 7. So what I usually do is I smash an hour's worth of stuff in less than 30 minutes, and we see if we can uh, uh, get that done. Um, first is our hymn. If you get out your green book, normally we do the hymn coming up for the Sunday, which would be in Vokavit or the first Sunday in Lent. I did that last year, and we haven't had a chance to look at hymn number 19. So we're going to look at hymn number 19, which happens to be the hymn of the day for this evening. So we'll go over it, and then we'll be singing it uh, for the divine service. Uh, It is the hymn, When O'er My Sins I Sorrow. in Lutheran worship is, uh, is 367, as well as in TLH. It's not in the new hymnal, the LSB, um, but uh, we have it as, as the hymn of the day for Ash Wednesday. Let's take a look at it. Stanza number one. When o'er my sins I sorrow, Lord, I will look to thee. And hence my comfort borrow that thou wast slain for me. And hence my comfort borrow that thou wast slain for me. So as we begin a season of Lent, particularly looking at the Word of God and, and uh, having the law to point out our sins and, and desiring to be repentant as we come to Easter with glad hearts, uh, this one begins, when I, when over my sins I sorrow, so when I'm sorrowing over my sins, when I see that I have uh, failed and it brings me uh, sadness, what am I to do about that? Well, confession has two parts. First, that we can confess our sins. Second, that we receive absolution. That is the gospel. And so stanza one starts right off with saying, I don't want to, it's, it's not yet, uh, you've not yet reached where you should. If you are simply sorrowing over sins, there needs to be, as it says, my comfort. That comfort that I'm going to borrow, I'm going to grab from Christ, uh, he gives me the comfort that thou was slain for me, that he died for us. And thus, this can uh, comfort us that we may not uh, lay in our sorrow, but that we might uh, rejoice in the forgiveness. It goes on to talk about what he has done, not only uh, slain for me, but, Yea, Lord, thy precious blood was spilt. Yea, Lord, thy precious blood was spilt. For me, O most unworthy. For me, to take away my guilt. And so this is what the Lord does. He spills his blood. He sheds his blood for us that he might take away the guilt that we deserved. He's our substitute. Stanza number two uh, begins describing what stanza one was all about. Oh, what a marvelous offering. Oh, what a marvelous offering. So, 
pointing back to, look at this offering that he made. He made for us. He suffered and died. He took away our sins. This is our gospel. This is our comfort. And so, again, oh, what a marvelous offering. Behold, the master spares. Behold, the as his servant and their suffering and grief for them he bears. So, he makes this offering that the master might spare us, his servants, and thus he does the grief and the suffering for us. God stoopeth from his throne on high. God stoopeth from his throne on high. For me, his guilty creature, for me, his guilty creature, he deigns as man to die. He deigns as man to die. So, for our God to come and, and the one who is the creator to come and to be the creature, to take on human flesh, is yes, it is a humiliation, it is a descending, it is him condescending, coming down to us so that we might have benefits, he wishes to, as man, to die for us. Stanza number three. What's the result of this uh, comfort that our Lord in doing this for us? Stanza three. My manifold transgression, my manifold transgressions, henceforth can harm me none. Henceforth can harm me none. And so, pointing back, all of my transgressions, that stuff which I did, this brings to us, well, a freedom from uh, uh, fear, being afraid of the trust, the, the judgment, the punishment uh, that we were to get. He says, no, now my manifold sins, my transgressions, they, they can harm me none. And since Jesus' bloody passion... For me, God's grace hath won. For me, God's grace hath won. His precious blood my debts hath paid. His precious blood my debts hath paid. Of hell and all its torments. I am no more afraid. I am no more afraid. So, it takes away the fear of death. It takes away the fear of punishment uh, for the one who has paid my debt, who has taken uh, the suffering that I deserve, and now um, I know that I've been comforted by this. Um, The rest of it is going to tell us, because of that, without fear, what happens. Stanza number four is going to describe our reaction Uh, to him. It's going to be one of a life of thanksgiving, of giving glory, of giving thanks, songs of thanks uh, for all that he has done. Um, I'll just read stanza four. Therefore, I will forever give glory unto thee, O Jesus, loving Savior, for what thou didst for me. I'll spend my breath in songs of thanks For thy sad cry, thy sufferings, thy wrongs, thy guiltless death. And so our response then is, again, giving glory to God, giving thanks to him for all the benefits uh, which he provides and gives to us. Make note uh, with this hymn, uh, at least all of the other hymns up to this point, 
have had the stanzas go down. This one, stanza five, is to the right, six, seven. Um, it's not the same and may throw you off just a bit. All right, stanza number five. Uh, what are we going to do, having given thanks for this? What else will this great benefit that uh, Jesus won for us, what will it do? Repeat after me. Lord, let thy woes, thy patience. Lord, let thy woes, thy patience. My heart with strength inspire. My heart with strength inspire. So, when I think of what Jesus has done for us, it is supposed to inspire in us strength. It's supposed to give our heart the strength to, to do something. Uh, it provides benefits for us. To vanquish all temptations, to vanquish all temptations, and spurn all base desire. And spurn all base desire. So not only does the gospel take away the fear of the suffering and the death, but it also gives us a motivation and inspires us that in the midst of temptations we can hold up under it. That's what the gospel gives. The power. Uh, in order that we might please our Lord, that we might uh, resist the temptations. It comes from, from the gospel. This thought I fain would cherish most. This thought I fain would cherish most. What pain my soul's redemption. What pain my soul's redemption. Hath thee, O Savior, cost. Hath thee, O Savior, cost. So, if you have two kinds of motivation, if you have the motivation that comes from fear, or you have the motivation that comes from love, which is stronger? When there is the application of, of the law, the threats, then I, I'm trying to try to keep it. But as soon as that goes away, not. but where there is the love, love of Christ for us, that I wish to, whether I'm pleasing him or whether anyone's watching or not, uh, um, I'm, I'm doing this because of that motivation. That is quite different, and that's what this presents to us, that which vanquishes all temptations. Stanza number six, dealing with... Uh, uh, trials. Whate'er may be the burden, whate'er may be the burden, the cross here on me laid. The cross here on me laid. So, as Christians, we're going to have burdens placed upon us. We're also going to have the cross that we must carry and follow our Lord. Uh, this is given to us, uh, whatever it might be. Be shame or want my garden. Garden is my reward. So no matter what the shame or the lack of things, the want that I have, um, what my garden, I'll bear it with thine aid. I'll bear it with thine aid. So I know that the Lord has provided for me this great reward, this recompense. He has provided this for me. And if he has provided it for me, then no matter what I am to well, bear up under, well, it's with the Lord's aid. 
uh, with God helping us. Give patience, give me strength to take. Before my bright example. Before my bright example. And all the world forsake. And all the world When it speaks of Jesus as an example, this is also one of those that um, uh, we had. We had this uh, culturally not too long ago. The question, "What would Jesus do?" And all of a sudden, you know, you kind of go, "Well, Jesus did this," you know. So therefore, if I'm to use him as an example, um, examples normally fall under the realm, at least modernly, always fall under the realm of law. That is, it's something where it holds me up and I have to do what he did. I have to reach up to it. And so it becomes kind of Jesus' life as a standard that I must come up to. I have found that in the Lutheran writings and hymns and things of this sort, when it speaks of Christ as an example, and it does, in fact, they they do it, I'm not going to say a lot, but quite often. When they do, it is just like in this particular hymn, in which, up to this point, have we spoken of Jesus as kind of a standard and the thing? No, the entire first part of this, you know, five stanzas worth, are of what he is giving for us and doing for us and all that, that he has done. And so, when it talks about patience and strength, Now that you see what he has done in this response of love, yes, you can look to the Lord in what he did for us. He was patient. He came and suffered for us. He he lived a life that was beyond all others. So it's not that that example is always wrong, but it always must come after uh, the gospel, which is the motivation. The example can't be the motivation, otherwise it's, it's the law. Um, it is more, and, and to explain it, I guess, in, in, in another way, um, it is the guide. It is third use uh, of, of, of law when they use it. All right, stanza number seven. And let me do to others as thou hast done to me. And let me do to others as thou hast done to me. Love all men as my brothers and serve them willingly. Love all men as my brothers and serve them willingly. So, you know, as we have in the first one, you know, the patience, the comfort, this, this that we do. Uh, and then as it relates to others, obviously there is love which follows after the forgiveness that we have received uh, that we might uh, love them. With ready heart nor seek my own. With a very heart, nor seek my own. But as thou, Lord, has helped us, but as thou, Lord, hast helped us, from purest love alone. From purest love alone. And so they reach to love. Quite interesting, that's the last stanza we have. Most of the time we see uh, that in their research and pulling back the hymns, uh, they'll add a hymn or, or a stanza that has been left off or, or for some reason is, is gone. Uh, this one, actually, there is one more stanza. Uh, there is a stanza eight. Uh, it's found in the handbook to the Lutheran hymnal. It wasn't included in the Lutheran hymnal 
uh, either. In fact, they actually excluded five through eight. But the eighth stanza, after having dealt with myself and my love of others, it leads with death. And so stanza eight. And let thy cross upbear me with strength when I depart. So what he is giving to us, not only does it give me uh, release from fear, help me to love my neighbor, but when I depart, at the end, it gives me strength. Tell me that naught can tear me from my Redeemer's heart. But since my trust is in thy grace, thou wilt accept me yonder where I shall see thy face. And so we have a a comforting one that deals with uh, the end or death. And uh, it seems to uh, fit all together. But uh, we'll use the seven that we have. I'm I'm not going to uh, sing it as we usually do since we're kind of rushed for time. We will sing it even just tonight. So, all right. Sacrament of the altar is uh, is our catechism. Uh, you actually can find it in your uh, hymnal on page 212. Page 212. We're dealing with the first question and second question. We didn't get to that last time as we didn't have uh, catechesis on uh, last Wednesday. What is the sacrament of the altar? Repeat after me. It is the true body and blood... Of our Lord Jesus Christ, under the bread and wine, for us Christians to eat and to drink, instituted by Christ Himself. So, with the first question, we answer: What is it? What is this thing? Well, we can see that it is bread and wine, uh, for those are the elements which our Lord tells us to take up and to use. But our Lord tells us of that which we cannot see or taste or sensorily uh, determine. It is his body and his blood. He gives it to us, as this one says, under the bread and wine, uh, we don't know exactly how this is. Sometimes the Lutheran Jews in or with or under. But we know that it is there. For if our Lord tells us it is, uh, that he will not lie. He does this on the night in which he was betrayed. He does this in a time in which he is giving us his last will and testament. And he is telling us exactly uh, in, in very clear words, not in, in picture language at all. And so he tells us that that's what this is. When the other writers, St. Paul interprets this, speaks of it, he says that there is a communion of the bread with the body. With, they're together. How? I, 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 I don't know. Um, do we receive? What do we receive in this uh, sacrament, in this sacrament of the altar? Well, um, our... Not in the small catechism in particular, but in the large catechism, it talks about how the body and blood is truly present, that would be there on the altar, and it is distributed, it is that which the pastor gives out, and that which we receive into the mouth. Um, With the words, which 
by this blessing, we bless this, uh, 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 the bread that is blessed, as it refers to in 1 Corinthians, uh, we have Jesus present with us in his body and blood. The Reformed churches evidently can't stomach it at, at its face value. Uh, they have determined to make it into symbolic language. Oh, it can't be the, the body and blood. Well, nothing is impossible. Our Lord can work whatever he desires. And especially if it is... Um, the problem is even in the symbolism itself. Not only is it a denial of the word, but then you have to kind of go, you know, well, well, well what does it symbolize? Well, the bread is, is, symbolizes the body of Christ. That, that would be all of the members. I go, so I'm eating the members of Jesus? I'm eating you guys? You know, I, 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 that sure doesn't, you know. Well, what does the blood represent? Well, oh, that one's a little tougher. Um, so, this kind of idea that it symbolizes. Some of the early church fathers actually do use the word, what we would call represent, but not with that symbolic kind of meaning. They actually say it represents. <laughs> that is, here it is, and the Lord is giving it. Mary? How do you suppose, I know this is an unanswerable question, but it bugs me all the time, when a particular group decides not to take the scriptures at face value, what they say, how do they decide which ones to accept and which ones to discard. Have you seen any pattern to that? I mean, we know that Thomas Jefferson was pretty strict about, you know, nothing that he personally couldn't, you know, put his hands on was to be, to remain there. But most of these groups are, are not that much uh, away from the scriptures, but it's just like, how do they choose this not to believe, but the other things which, to me, are as foolish to this world are okay? Um, in a book describing the religious bodies of America, the writer goes through and he, as he is explaining these different groups and, and how they come about, he uses a couple terms. He uses a term called the material principle and the formal principle. The material principle is, where do they get their stuff from? What's the material? Where do they go to? You know, for uh, the Lutheran church, as well as the Reformed churches, they would say, we go to Scripture alone, sola scriptura, that's where we go. If you have the Roman Catholic church, they will say that it is Scripture and tradition. And so, they, you know, sometimes you kind of say, well, that's not in the scripture. And they go, what? Doesn't matter. We got it out of tradition. So that's where they go. Where do they get that? You know, your question is, what about these groups that say they're scripture and scripture alone? Then we move on to, and as he categorizes these groups, he talks about what is called the formal principle. In other words, as we go to this writing, what do we, what are our principles that we uphold? Um, for some reason ends up determining 
and you know, we always say, oh, I'll let my reason be held you know, back. If the scriptures go something against reason, I'll go with what scripture says. For these others, it's not so. And so reason becomes, it's got to be reasonable. And so that is how they, you might say, smash on that. That makes it up. And quite interesting, as he goes through, he will use that, and, and he goes through like their whole doctrine, and then goes, but you see how they applied this principle in various different ways. So, for let me just get one, one other example that would go. Um, for those who would say, well, yeah, you do the law. It's not all gospel. You do have to do something. And they would say, well, if God gave us a law, he wouldn't have given us a law we couldn't keep. And that's the principle, right? That's, you know, where we kind of go, well, of course he gave us a law we couldn't keep. It's called the Ten Commandments. I, I, um, but, but that's, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, can you answer that? Yeah, you've got some principles that are making you take the natural sense of these words in a different way. And that's what happens. The Roman Catholic Church teaches transubstantiation. Transubstantiation says the substance trans changes. It used to be bread and wine. Now it becomes the body and blood, and it ceases to be bread and wine. They use an Aristotelian uh, explanation in which it still looks like bread, tastes like bread. That's just its accidents. But its substance is body, and that's what it is. But they would say it's no longer bread at all. Uh, there are only, after the priest says the words, there's only two elements, body and blood, and that's all it is. If you ask a Lutheran, it's four elements, body and blood, bread and wine. If you ask a Reformed, before and after, it's bread and wine, and that's all it is. So we're the only one that speaks of four, all the two we can see and the two we can't. Uh, Lutherans, we don't know how it becomes the body and blood of Christ. Now, in the words of institution, it still mentions the bread, and it still makes reference to that. And so we say, well, no, it's, it's still bread, but it's also his body. I don't know how that is, but Paul speaks of it in that way. He doesn't cease talking about it as being bread. Um, does it become? Yes, it does. Is transubstantiation the way? Well, it sure doesn't seem like it. Um, doesn't quite fit with the with the... The way, but we're we're at least glad that you don't deny that it's Christ's body and, and, and blood in it. But the reason for that term is because the priest has been uh, uh, is in the line of the Pope. And he has laid his hands on him, who has laid his hands on him, who has laid his hands on him. And now, if I am in that line, if I'm connected, I have been given that special, and they call it the indelible character. Indelible means it's written on and you can't get rid of it. Um, so that I can change this thing. I can do this transubstantiation. I can make this change. Um, that's the reason that the words transubstantiation came about. Um, it came about because... Uh, they were looking for this uh, explanation for this change. And, and that's where it came about. Uh, the Lutherans really don't have any idea how it happens, and we're not really concerned about, about that. But, uh, but 
But question number one, what is it? That's what this answers. What is it? It's the true body and blood. Question number two, where is this written? Answer, the holy evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write thus. And Luther reproduces the words of institution. These are the words of these writers all put together. Uh, some include one thing, some include another. In order that we might not lose any of it, we bring them all together, taking all of that and, and putting it here. This is what the church has done with its, uh, with its gospels. Uh, three of them refer to it, John doesn't, as well as St. Paul who makes reference to it. Everything that we need to know about the Lord's Supper is found in these words. And so we go back to these words in order to show that. Next week, we'll be taking a look at the other questions. What benefits do we get? Well, we get forgiveness of sins. How can it do this? Well, it's the Word being put together with this. The Word makes it such. And then finally, with the fifth question, uh, who receives this? How is this to be done in a proper way, in a worthy way?